This is Amplify, a podcast for people that want to crush life by learning from the minds of high performers. So take a deep breath in and get ready to become more, live more, and give more. Welcome to another episode of the Amplify podcast. I'm your host, John Templeton, and joining me today is Nicole Gibson. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Nicole. Um, Nicole is well-known as an award-winning social entrepreneur. She is the author of a book called Love Out Loud, and you're soon going to discover that her mission is love-based. She is the CEO of a movement called the you know, Love Out Loud, and she's also um, the CEO, well, I don't know if that's the right word, the, the founder of a not-for-profit charitable organization. Now, not only that, but she's also been on the TED stage and spoken with Ted, spoken with Mind Valley, a really incredible uh, a woman with the what this that, that's the official bit. Now here's my bit. When I talk to Nicole, I've met with her um, a number of times. She's not far from me here in the Gold Coast. It's her story and the the energy she brings to life that is what moves me and is what moves people, which is something I really, really love. So in today's session, we're gonna dive into her story, which is so freaking incredible, what she's been through and how she is a messenger of love for people, which allows them to set themselves free, to be the person they were born to be, um, regardless of any like social boundaries. So we're in for an amazing, amazing session. You're going you're gonna to hear it in her voice. You're going to feel it come through, whether you're listening on the audio, whether you're watching live or the replay. So without further ado, I want to uh, welcome you to the show, Nicole Gibson. Thanks, John. Hey, everybody. So, Nicole, I, I truly mean that when I say that your story and the energy you bring is what touches people. So, where did this whole thing, and you know what, normally I don't want to hear people's stories because it's sometimes, it's quite often it's the same old shit. With yours, it's not. And I really want to hear your story again. So where did this love out loud, love, where did it start? Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful way to refer to people's stories, John. Same old shit. Love that. <laughs> you know, what's so, what's so interesting about that is um, hearing people's stories and really like, just getting out of my own way, I suppose, in, in hearing people and listening to people's stories has probably been one of the most pivotal um, aspects of my work. I'm such, such a deep believer that when we learn to listen to each other, um, that's sort of the gateway. That's the, the gateway to deepening our compassion. That's the gateway to understanding that we're not alone in the world and ultimately in cultivating more self-love, that also means listening to yourself. And I guess in my journey, the reason I began valuing that so deeply is because I really wasn't listening to myself. I wasn't listening to what my mind, my body, my spirit needed to feel um, secure, to feel stable, to feel loved, to feel held, to feel, I think most importantly, safe. Mm -hmm. So I had a very unconventional childhood. Mm -hmm. I grew up between London and Australia and um, yeah, went to about 10 different schools <laughs> and was always very different, very different thinker, but I didn't really understand that I was different. So that was very, um, 
you know, it was a point of, of separation between me and others and I didn't necessarily understand why people did, the, did what they did or were the way that they were. And I didn't understand that, um, you know, the, the way that I saw people, the compassion I held them in, the love that I held them in wasn't always reciprocated. Mm-hmm. And over time, I think as a child, especially with the amount of transition that I was experiencing consistently, um, I really started to take that out on myself. I thought that the way that people were being was um, was because that's what I deserved and wasn't a reflection of how how their self-relationship was positioned in, inside them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I left mainstream school at 14. And at this point, um, I'd traveled the world with my family. My dad was a pro gambler, um, biggest risk taker ever, mathematical genius. And my mom's like super risk adverse. So very Just quickly like- on your dad. I didn't know that. What what gambling? Was it like sports? Was it uh, like blackjack? What was his what was his uh, thing? Racing, um, poker, blackjack. And he was Back- good at it? He like he was on the upside of winning? Yeah, it's all probability to dad. So there was really yeah. no um, over, over a long period of time, not much risk in, in his calculation. Um, so yeah, he's done that since he was 16 years old and we had a very um, amazing childhood upbringing, but mum was super risk adverse. So you can just imagine those two influences in my life cause a lot of chaos and confusion inside, mm. inside me, but also a deep acceptance, I think, like seeing the differences and being able to welcome them into my heart <laughs> for all that they were. Um, but I left mainstream school at 14 and I was positioned in this academy, which really was like all of my dreams come true on one hand. I was an aspiring performer at the time. I didn't have to go to mainstream school. I was performing every day. I was around the cohort of other young people that were super talented. But the one thing that no one taught me that would have been so pivotal and has become so pivotal as I've learned it through my adult years was it doesn't matter how amazing the opportunities are that you get given in life, if you don't have a foundation of self-love, you can't make the most of those opportunities. You can't actually receive those opportunities, uh, which was was very much my experience. I was in this inner conflict with myself where I had my dream literally at my fingertips, but I didn't feel worthy of that. So I couldn't actually, my subconscious was working against me and there was a degradation that began to happen with my mental health, um, which really impacted my ability to show up and eventually became the reason that I couldn't actually um, be in rehearsals and act because at that point um, my weight had plummeted so low that doctors advised against um, me being able to perform because it was so so much exertion of energy. I was struggling with anorexia at that point. Um, and I learned something very valuable at during that time. I learned that... <clears throat> you can adhere to other people's expectations of you and what they believe it means for you to be um, an ideal. And for me, as an aspiring performer and a young woman, I really was in so many ways aspiring towards that ideal and um, was very successful at it. What I started to notice was very quickly when that started to go into vulnerability and, and eventually a crisis, Um, 
people were very uncomfortable in, in knowing how to lean into that, knowing how to, to be with me in that discomfort, be with me in that vulnerability. And I was left very alone. And at the time, I thought that that was because I was unlovable, I was invisible, people couldn't see me. And I now know that that's because the fragility and the vulnerability that I was representing was something that they weren't comfortable being present with. Mm-hmm. And so I learned that often when we don't do the work on ourselves to really be present in ourselves, we unconsciously reject others around us when they show up representing those things that we haven't reconciled within our within ourself and from my family's point of view and perspective and and my closest friends and many of my teachers there was a very strong denial of what was quickly becoming a crisis and our culture when you say crisis you mean anorexia and mental health yeah yeah at that point my weight had plummeted to 38 kilos This, this, this whole week I've been watching lots of your YouTube videos and absorbing your content. I haven't read your book, um, unfortunately, but I, I, rem- I remember hearing in one of your videos, you said that, you know, when you were skinny, the, uh, like boys gave you attention and you said that, that fashion people wanted more of you. It, it's kind of like there was part of being anorexic, which was rewarding your ego. Um, that's definitely not that's definitely not how I hold myself in that experience. Uh-huh. I feel underneath underneath that experience, the truth was um, I had no way of having a voice and expressing how I was feeling. So the default became self punishment, and often when I was internalizing and taking out on myself what I couldn't express externally and that physically manifested as me literally fading away Mm -hmm. which is you know love out loud is the opposite of that finding that love inside of you and learning how to express that learning how to have a voice in the world that's grounded in truth and authenticity and what's real for you um i feel like the attention i got during that time which was definitely there until it got um to a point of crisis actually caused me more pain because I was being rewarded essentially for something that was coming from a, from a quite a severe place of self-hatred and self-punishment. So every time someone complimented me, it didn't feel good. It actually felt very painful because they couldn't see where that was coming from in, in me and how much I actually needed, needed to be held in that vulnerability, not rewarded in, um, yeah, in that behavior or that, that way of being. So what happened from being, um, you know, you're at this age, you're in the performance world, but it's starting to, you know, you can't even start performing now because you're sick. I know there's a, there's a moment in time with your teacher where something really profound happened. And so is that really the catalyst for all of this? And would you mind sharing how that all, because it's an incredible story in itself. Yeah. My school principal showed me a, a way of leadership that, at that, up until that point, I didn't, I'd never seen before. I never realized um, the power of, and when everyone else slowly but surely was getting more and more resistant to my circumstance, which um, was because they just, they felt helpless in the situation. You know, I think when someone's struggling, often when we don't know how to feel comfortable in that vulnerability, what we'll start to say to ourselves is, 
I don't want to say the wrong thing. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? What if I make it worse? I'm not the right person. And what we fail to recognize when we take this position with someone else's pain is we're essentially making it about ourselves. When there's someone in front of us that really does require our presence, um, and that's, you know, fueled by a very self-oriented culture, I would say, um, and deep insecurity. When, you, when you're self-secure, someone else's vulnerability doesn't threaten you, and I now know that. <clears throat> and my teacher, my principal, was, was the first person to ever demonstrate that to me. So he lent in to my situation, and, you know, he was a 50-year-old alpha male guy, I was a very um, fragile 16-year-old girl. So from the outside, very unlikely person to sort of be leaning into that situation and being a source of light and, and strength. And when he approached me at school that day, I could hear the vulnerability in his voice, but I just remember feeling um, terror and I remember feeling a huge amount of shame. And I just wanted to run away, which is so ironic because... All I wanted was to be seen. And mm-hmm. here he was leaning into me saying, can you please come and have a conversation with me? I just, I sense that things aren't okay. And I just wanted to, to run a million miles because I didn't feel deserving of that. And yet it's what I wanted most. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, we, we so deeply want to be seen, held, loved. But as soon as someone even gets remotely close to truly seeing us, if we don't have that level of self-love and self-acceptance, we want to we want to flee. We want to run away. Um, what would you say to someone in that position? Because, like you said, that will that will resonate with a lot of people. It's like they're kind of screaming for help, but at the same time, they're not asking for it. And when it comes in, they kind of push it away. What would I say to them? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, I'd say it's a journey. I would say. Um, you've really got to honor what you need to feel safe first, but there's always going to feel like an element of fear and it's going to feel scary, like leaning in because when you're vulnerable in someone else's presence in someone else's, um, hand, so to speak, you're, um, you're super impressionable and, and yeah, just vulnerable to that. So I would say you've got to learn to trust at some point, but the journey really does start with learning what you need to feel safe. But that was a, definitely a concept that, you know, I didn't realize at that time that I wasn't feeling safe. I, I couldn't make sense of what I was feeling. Um, so I, I'm, I was extremely grateful that there was someone in my life at that point that could kind of take, take that position and be a rock. Um, yeah, so he, he asked me to come into his office and I remember feeling so scared that I couldn't actually sit across from his desk because the physical tension was too much. So I had to go and sit like on the on the other side of his office, physically away from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was bracing myself. I was waiting for him to actually like yell at me or scold me for what I was going through because that's what obviously I felt. I deserved and often how I felt others were sort of treating me or showing up in my space. And what he said completely diffused me. He said, I'm not here to make you feel afraid. I just want you to know that you're not alone in going through what you're going through. Was and this, was this in, in school school or was this in like art, 
art and performance school. Yeah, he was the principal of the academy. It was an art school that I was going to. Yeah. yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't like a mainstream, mainstream school. But someone actually asked me the other day uh, in an interview, do you think um, it was the, you know, the fact that you were in art school that supported your, your recovery? And I really don't think that it was the fact that I went to an alternative school. I think it was the presence that he showed up with that allowed me to have a safe space to actually surrender. Do you think um, that presence is more likely to appear in an art school? Um, again, like I, I feel like this is a person to person variable. And I, I feel like humans have a way of getting so fixated on that's the system that works. And this is a system that doesn't work. And it's just, I know this through my, my career and my journey working at very high levels of government and then working completely grassroots, like literally helping communities develop from the, the ground up um, and a spectrum in between. And what I know for sure is that no system um, is separate from the human beings that are within that system mm-hmm. and the system's functionality and the system's effectiveness a hundred percent comes down to how those human beings are showing up. But surely in a, in a space where there's art and you would say more of a, more of a, more of a, it's creative, right? It's the creative. It's, it's, it's the more of the feminine expression as opposed to the masculine drive and focus. It's surely the more majority of people in that space are open to that as opposed to like in the military for example very masculine approach and it would be like get on with it go and see the psych don't bother us with your problems whereas in i'm just feeling into that and i don't know maybe you'd agree or disagree yeah culture i think culture is definitely um a big a big part of it we didn't have a culture at that point at the academy that was um pro support pro well-being pro emotion this was back you know 12 years ago mental health was still very stigmatized the viewpoint was it's a biological predisposition culture has nothing to do with it i was in a very competitive environment um if you were the one that pushed yourself the most you know starved yourself the hardest you were going to be the one that succeeded so in that way I, i wouldn't say that it was a soft environment i'd say it was a very competitive environment my principal was a super alpha male, um, very military style guy. And he shared a story with me that day in his office where he um, almost lost another student to an eating disorder, uh, but had too much resistance and pride to lean in and made a promise to himself that that would never happen again. And that was that was the pivotal moment for him where he recognized well I can't I can't put what makes me uncomfortable before someone's you know life when I actually have a power to do something about it so yeah I'm I'm not sure I can't say that I I can't say this is the contribution of the environment but what I definitely know is irrespective of the environment you're in we all have an opportunity to connect to our own humanity and that's an individual responsibility because I think no matter where you are in society, there's going to be cultures because of what we've come from that are founded on um, oppression and suppression and an absence of safety. 
And that really is a journey that's got to start with us. And this is why stories are so powerful yeah, because the more that we hear other people's stories and we connect to the humanity in someone else, um, the more that we can actually soften into our own hearts and, and develop that capacity to truly be present with others, um, when, which is the pathway to healing, you know? Yeah. When I said sa- stories and same old, same old shit, what I was uh, meaning was, you know, I wrote a book. I'm an international speaker. It's not actually their story. It's, it's what they, it's the front that they lead with just to clear that up. What I meant by that. Yeah. So I, I, this, this teacher made an ultimatum with you. Um, and it, you know, it, it was weird at first and then it made sense afterwards. So what, what happened next? What was, what was this life changing moment? Yeah. So after he let me know that he just didn't want me to be alone and that was his um, intention for calling me into his office, I just cried for about half an hour. And that was because that was the first time I'd actually felt a space um, where I could come as I was. So there was no mention um, of the fact that I was struggling with mental illness. There was no mention of the fact that there was something that needed to be fixed. He just let me be. And that was so imperative to how pivotal and transformative that moment was. Um, And in the midst of my tears, he asked me a question and said, you know what my favourite thing to do after school is? And I was like... (laughs) Obviously, I don't know that. And he said it has been for 30 years uh, as a teacher. I go home and I have a beer and that's my favourite thing to do. And I want to make you a deal today. And he, he got a piece of paper out and he wrote on the piece of paper, I won't have a beer until you hit your weight target. And he signed it like it was a contract and he put it on the side of his desk with, with sticky tape. And I just remember looking at that thinking, how could you do that? Like, why would you do that for me? How, um, how could you do that for me? Because I felt so unworthy of being given to and, and receiving such an amazing gesture of humanity. And so I asked him just why. And he said, I'm never going to understand what it's like to be a 16-year-old aspiring performer, trying to make it um, female, etc. But what I do understand is what it feels like to be climbing a mountain alone and I know how hard it is to try and make it to the top with no support so I just want I want to contribute something to your journey and let you know that you're not alone in going through this and again that moment it definitely changed the trajectory of my life it definitely didn't create an instant healing I had to walk a very long journey there was a lot of complications with my health on on every level from from that experience and I, I almost lost my life but there was a light in that which was his um his love his compassion every time that I thought I couldn't keep going um or I thought about ending it or whatever that that darkness was because someone else had invested in me and believed in me felt a sense of um, not only support but accountability to to keep going and to keep walking through that that darkness to a place of love once again and that really showed me the power of leading 
next to someone, you know, or sometimes even leading behind someone and, and lifting them up. Whereas up until that point, I'd only seen leadership that was authoritarian, that was look at me, I'm the boss. Um, and his gesture completely redefined what I now know a leader to truly be, which is someone that's able to give the space that they have to empower someone else to move forward. Um, yeah. So forever grateful for him. He went two years without having a beer. <laughs> that would have been a test in itself. Yeah. And, and I asked him, actually, I asked him, did it feel like a sacrifice? And he said, um, at first I thought it was going to be. And then the more I recognized what you, um, who you were becoming and what this was giving to you, what I gained from that gesture was so much greater than what I ever sacrificed. And again, I think that that was such a powerful sentiment of love too. Like we have this kind of connotation that giving to others is, is going to be at the expense of ourselves or self-sacrifice. And it's just not, that's not the true um, nature of giving. That's not the true nature of generosity. When we're generous, it's so abundant. But so many of us give um, with an agenda or give with an expectation. We're not giving from a genuine place. So we're not actually experiencing the, the true gifts that come from, from that. Mm, yeah. And now you said it wasn't an instant and it was a journey. There's a period of time. So you're about 16 now, 16, 17. And at the age of 21 and confirm, tell me if I'm wrong, but you were the youngest ever mental health commissioner in the federal government of Australia. What, happened between that moment and getting a position in in the federal government yeah i guess it started with the decision i made which was if i'm going to um if i'm going to heal from this and just just for sort of context so you, you guys can relate to where i was at every day was immense suffering for years so there was a lot of pain like being in those that the state that I was in, um, it took a lot to sort of rise above and become stronger than. So in making a commitment to heal, for me, it wasn't enough just to be like, okay, I'm going to heal and, and go and li live a normal life. I knew that there was going to be um, an offset, you know, the pain that, and the suffering that I endured, there was going to be a polarity um, in that experience. So I guess it was a powerful decision that my life was going to be um, for something more, for something bigger than just me. Mm -hmm. And a deep devotion to the power of love because it, it had saved my life. And did so that you, put Did you label it then as love or is now, is it in hindsight, you realize it was love? No, I knew. Yeah. I, I really, I started to have very deep encounters with, um, what I would call God deep, just a deep unconditional ever present love. And I started to experience um, in my aloneness, not, not really being alone, just really feeling that there is um, a presence that's always there, always there that, w that we can lean on, you know, and it's like even just our breath, it's a miracle. And I, I guess I started to awaken because I was in such deep, appreciation for every moment as well um being able to eat again being able to 
be in the sun, just every small experience I had such a, like a reverence for. And that was meaning that every day uh, I was meeting God. And it was very, very powerful um, aspect of my journey. And I was understanding it to be love at that point. I'm very, very unconditional. And I just kept giving myself to that energy because I knew that um, I didn't have in my own construct of self enough um, enough insight to be able to heal. Like I had to be able to trust in something bigger than me. I had to be able to surrender to something greater than, than what I'd previously known so that I could become that. And it started to really guide me. I graduated and went to uni for about three months. And during this time I was studying marketing and just so like opposed to what I was learning. Marketing was essentially like, you know, you're not whole. Let me sell you this product in a really manipulative way and convince you that you'll be whole then. Um, was obviously so against my value system after going through what I went through. Um, and I started to have really crazy dreams, quite crazy synchronicities. I now recognize that what I was going through was for sure like an awakening, but I didn't really have anyone in my life at that point to explain that. So I was just sort of like going with it and trying to figure it out as I went. Um, the more I listened to that guidance, the more I started to be led into the direction of service. And shortly after I left school or three months into my degree, I decided to found a nonprofit. And I mean, it's, it's a huge story, but long story short, the first major project we ran. Um, Is this the van and the dog? Yeah, so I traveled Australia for, for two years consistently working in, in communities and actually just hearing people's stories. That was was essentially um, the whole ethos of the campaign was through listening and be, and giving each other a safe space to actually be witnessed in, in their truth, in our truths, then we would heal. And what was so fascinating about that journey was I started to recognize in my facilitation the less opinion I had, the less I said, the less I did, and the more I just created an open space for people to be, the more powerful the transformations. Mm -hmm. What got really interesting was the work, as I started to step back and ultimately trust that there was a higher orchestration that was happening through that intention of of love and compassion, um, the work really just started to have very profound impacts. You know, people that would come up and and share that they had had therapy for 10, 20 years and nothing came close to the healing they received in the space. But it was so simple. Mm -hmm. We were literally just creating safety for people to be be seen. They didn't need to be fixed. And I I started to recognize that everything about our system, emotional, spiritual, psychological, physical. Our our human system, you mean, or the system we live in? our human system yeah um everything about it is is so intelligent and designed for healing and and to evolve and when we give it the space to do that it will be so but when we interfere and we get in the way and we complicate things and um believe that we need to be fixed we don't actually give ourselves or each other the space to really tap into that innate intelligence and the communities that i was working in 
on a collective level started to have massive, massive, massive shifts. Like schools that had 15% attendance after six months had 70, 80% attendance. Suicide rates were decreasing. Addiction rates were decreasing. And we would have communities. At that point, I had a team traveling with me calling us and just saying like, what was it about your work that is having these profound impacts and giving us this feedback? And so after a few years, I knew that policymakers needed to be exposed to this because our federal budget every year, we were putting more and more money into health, irrespective of what a lot of advocates believe. Actually, we put more money into health every single year, but it was, it was, and still is in many ways, but it's improving a very reactive system Mm -hmm. where money was only being spent when there was um, a crisis as, as many people, you know, are aware of, it's just, extinguishing spot fires not actually getting to the root of the problem but the model that we were bringing to communities was one extremely cost effective two very simple and could be peer-led um yeah so i started to advocate and one of the events that i ran in parliament um i was sharing some of the stories in from the communities that we were working in and i was so naive like i was not even 20 at the time still a teenager and um, the PM was there and the health minister was there and I didn't even know who the health minister was. <laughs> so he came and introduced himself to me and um, I didn't even know who I was talking to. But uh, they did their due diligence after that um, on a lot of my work and then less than 12 months later asked if I would step onto, um, step into the department as, as a commissioner, which is essentially, essentially an advisor to the... Um, the PM and the federal health minister on, on budget. So you support with budget recommendations and really supported the transition into more um, preventative and early intervention based solutions in, in health and mental health. Mm-hmm. And how long were you in government and what was your, what was your, I mean, you gave us a brief role. What were you doing on it? What did a daily basis look like? Are you with the community still or are you working sort of more behind a desk? Um, a, com- a commissioner is not a full-time job per se. So generally a commissioner will be selected later on in their career. So mm-hmm. the other commissioners I was working with were mostly in their 60s, some in their 70s. And generally you get chosen because... Um, because of the excellence you've demonstrated in your um, in your field of expertise, so mm-hmm. it's like an advisory role. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I was still leading the nonprofit. I was still developing community development systems and models that allowed uh, communities to build what I framed as emotional infrastructure. So that was very intensive work, like. I pretty much traveled consistently through that whole time. Um, sometimes communities would call with a really wicked problem, which means a multi-level problem and say something like, you know, our suicide rates increased 10% in the past three months. Can you come and do something about it? So often solving problems with very little context, not really understanding um, systemically where the problem was, was coming from. And so the way that um, I would operate would, was I would actually go and, and live in that community and listen to the stakeholders and be be there and develop solutions for them and unify their community, which was the most important thing over a period of time. So I was flying to Canberra a lot, 
Um, I was flying to communities a lot. And then eventually um, overseas as well, learning more about initiation, rites of passage, community development, um, and doing the work overseas and in Australia. And yeah, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. <laughs> mm. I hear a lot. I've had a few people on the show now that talk about rites of passage. What's your, what's your understanding of that and take on rites of passage? Yeah, I came across the power of rite of passage when I started to see statistics in mental health, like 85% of adult mental health challenges first manifested in, in the adolescent years. And I found that a very interesting statistic, right? Like 85% of adults who are currently struggling with mental illness had symptoms of that same mental illness during their adolescence. Another stat in mental health that I found really interesting, which led me to understand the power of rite of passage, was 90% of people that are struggling with moderate to mild, so mild to moderate mental health challenges. And out of all diagnoses, by the way, only 2% are acute or severe. So most people sit within that mild to moderate spectrum uh, are experiencing a mental health challenge during periods of vulnerability and change. Mm So, yeah, it was sort of like I was putting all these pieces together. Like, what are we, one, what are we not doing for our adolescents to healthily transition them? And isn't it also really interesting that 90% of, of people struggling with mental health challenges um, have that be triggered during periods of change? And so I just started to have a really innate curiosity about that. I was like, wow, the root of it is mostly our teenage years. And then the trigger for it in our adult life is periods of change and transition. This was before I had been introduced to rites of passage, but I definitely started to see through my own work and and findings with people that we were not successfully transitioning each other um, or our children through childhood into adulthood. And through that curiosity, I eventually found um, the rite of passage frameworks and started to research more about how that had been previously facilitated in tribes. Um, And I really started to juxtapose that with my work in mental health and started to recognize that a lot of mainstream therapies focus on um, sort of rewriting your story, but they're not actually putting the individual in a position where they're in in rites of passage you call it a liminal space where you're taken out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. you're put into a space where your belief systems no longer stand Mm -hmm. um and you basically are in in an explorative real-time experience of being able to redefine what those belief systems are and how you um relate to to the world and that to me was very very powerful because I definitely saw in in those that I was working with that a lot of the suffering, the ongoing suffering came from an inability to let go of an identity. Mm -hmm. And I related that a lot to my journey as well. Like one of the things that terrified me most about recovering from anorexia is I didn't know who I was going to be on the other side of that, of that illness. And if someone had explained to me, um, you know, that identity is meant to be fluid that we're actually meant to go through many rites of passage. And the definition of a rite of passage is a transformative experience that um, will leave you different to the person you were before the experience. So we have many of these initiations in our life and a lot of them are not healthily facilitated, like coming of age. So most of us are initiated through drugs and alcohol, pornography, so on. 
it's not necessarily a healthy way to transition ourselves into adulthood. Mm. Um, a heartbreak, um, falling in love, uh, being made redundant, having a business fail, all of these things are initiations. But if you don't understand that um, irrespective of the version of the rite of passage, this is inevitable in life, then you're really going to struggle. When you understand that rite rite of passage is inevitable, that no matter what your version of an initiation is, good or bad, that it is going to happen, that there's actually a cycle to what is going to unfold, just like nature has cycles. There's going to be a period of entropy and breakdown where you're being separated and removed from your comfort zone. All of your belief systems and values are going to be up in the air and challenged and you're not going to know who you are. It's going to feel like an identity crisis. And then you're going to be in a period of um, exploration and inquiry. And it's so important when you're in that situation, the middle part of that process, so in metamorphosis, if you're the caterpillar, but you're not yet the butterfly, you're in the chrysalis, you're in the mush. When you're in that, it's so important to um, have grace with yourself and actually not put pressure on yourself to you know, have it all figured out. And I think as a society, again, because we're so uncomfortable with vulnerability a lot of the time, when someone doesn't know, everyone freaks out. You know, they're trying to pull you back to the identity that you used to be. Like when I was in the midst of anorexia, one thing that I would get told all the time is we miss who you used to be. Yeah. But the trauma that I had experienced, I was never going to be that person again. Yeah. I actually had to be initiated into oh. another version of myself. Forward, exactly. Mm. And so that last part of the initiation is the integration and the acknowledgement. And that's so important to be seen for the shift that has occurred in you Mm -hmm. and to be witnessed and acknowledged in that is what allows us to integrate into that identity and to feel safe in that identity. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me the other night on Wednesday, just gone, I ran a class on the hero's journey and it's a way of people being able to see that metamorphosis process and understand where they are in their own in their own journey so is this process and this rite of passage is that what you took out to the rural communities in your work or or you said you said before that you were building emotional frameworks i think that was the words you used infrastructure emotional infrastructure was that was that like okay this is where we are now if we go through this kind of process of love and holding space for each other to share stories, we come out of the other side of this process and, you know, life's going to be better on, on most fronts. Is that what you were going around doing? Yeah, I didn't see, I didn't realize um, the similarities at the time between the work I was doing and rite of passage or initiation. My process, my conscious process, I guess at the time was, um, to go and listen to each stakeholder in the community. So mm-hmm. I would identify who those stakeholders were. It might be parents, teachers, students, service providers, council members, general public, um, so on. And I would spend a whole day, if not more, just listening. And I would take notes and I would write what I was hearing and I would do that with every stakeholder. And then I'd determine what are the similarities and where's the miscommunication happening? So where, where is their blame? Where is their fragmentation? Where is their victimization? Where is there a loss of power? So on. 
and I would bring the whole community together in a forum and basically feed back to them what I had heard without superimposing any of my opinions mm-hmm. or just um, feedback what I had heard and allow the space to be facilitated in a way where essentially they started to see 99.999% of the time that one, they actually wanted the same things. Yeah. <laughs> that there was common vision, that there was actually alignment um, and to offer a space that was, yeah, safe enough and not um, threatening for them to be able to drop their egos, let go of the need to be right and actually meet each other. And so it was unifying communities back to a place of commonality, mm-hmm. shared vision, shared value systems as well, uh, and then allowing that to be what ultimately healed the community. So it definitely was a form of initiation. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I wasn't consciously thinking I'm going into communities and initiating them. I just saw it as giving a space for what was really present to be seen and heard, acknowledged so that everyone could move forward and no longer hold on to resentment or, you know, judgment or whatever it was that was keeping their community um, fragmented. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And so we will dive into more of like, cause I know you talk a lot about judgment and acceptance being sort of these two polarities. Um, and the commonality, that's another thing that kept circulating in a lot of your content was that we're all humans and, and we're not divided. We're all actually the same. Is this, is this what Love Out Loud, the, the book or the movement, what came first? Was it like, hey, I want to write a book about this and share it? Or is it, I want to, you know, build this, this movement so more people can experience it? How did the, the, the Love Out Loud that we know now, how did that get birthed? Yeah, it's a great question. I got to a place in my journey where I'd been doing this work for eight years. I'd been a commissioner for four years. Um, So I had, I guess, a lot of exposure to um, what I was seeing to be the underlying both problem, but also seeing what the solution could be and started to recognize that this wasn't just about mental health. This was actually about humanity and how we how we are existing, you know, and how we relate to ourselves in the world. Um, and when I started to realise that, that at the end of the day, all of us just want to be seen and heard, all of us want to be witnessed and accepted in who we are, and that is the commonality, like that is our shared experience, all of us want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also seeing how much division was being created just by people not being able to accept someone else in their difference. So it was humans have this way, I think, or we have had this way of it's so all or nothing, unless you agree with every single belief belief system and every single value, then I can't exist with you. Mm-hmm. I have to try and destroy you or I have to try and change your mind. Um, and we're not going to be able to heal the world like that because differences in perspective, differences in belief system will always occur in my opinion so how do we reconcile that how do we move closer towards loving compassion i mean that's a big question there's many different um many different theories of that like i interviewed a guy who had really interesting theories on the love out loud podcast the other day and one of his premises were you will never shift um, humans innate selfishness so the best we can do is um incentivize um behaving to the betterment, you know, of, of others and also um, 
creating systems that will allow selfish acts to have some sort of greater outcome for for all. And I was like, interesting. That's definitely not my viewpoint, but such an interesting thing to think about. For, for me, I do feel we can all move closer to love and compassion. The more we are in our heart, the more we recognize the commonality, it becomes easier to understand each other. And through understanding, uh, we create unity. So when I saw this in my work, and by this point, I'd worked with like half a million people in 40 different countries around the world. So I'd been like on a journey, like on a serious journey, I decided that I didn't need to be working in, in that way anymore. What I really needed to be doing was taking a stand for love and actually helping people understand what love is and breaking down misconceptions um, of love and these kind of like romanticized views that people have been sold about what love is or the idea that I need you to complete me like and really bring back the integrity of what love truly is, which is a state of being um, that all of us have access to because it's inside of you. It's intrinsic experience and that's where it needs to begin. And I just couldn't see that leadership in the world. So I'm a very big believer in becoming the leader you wish you had. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote the book with no understanding that it would become what it is today. But I went very deep into that writing process and it allowed me to get clear on um, my philosophy. I think writing a book is amazing process for that. Mm -hmm. And then it just had a life force of its own. Like again, a series of really crazy synchronicities like, I was speaking in um, Tallinn in Eastern Europe and there was a guy there that I'd met on a plane in Australia five years beforehand who wanted to um, invest in making Love Out Loud um, a lot bigger than it was at the time and just a lot of really insane like situations of universal intervention and Love Out Loud really just had a life force of its own. I feel like Love Out Loud created me, not the other way around. <laughs> You know, that's so funny you say that because I was like, this morning I was thinking about you and about the podcast and I was like, that's what I felt as well. I, was, I, I feel like most people go out with a mission. I feel like your mission was called, if that makes sense, by the, the world. That's so funny you say that. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I experience it. That's why I'm like, I'm in awe of, of it every day because it, it teaches me like, Someone called me a teacher of love the other day and I was like, no, I'm, I'm the ultimate student of love. Yeah. Love is the teacher. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about love because you said then breaking down misconceptions and all those things. I think now would be a good time to talk like functionally, like what is love? Is it the, the, the oxytocin? Is it the vibration that comes out from the body? Is it a, a thought you have? Like, what is it? Hmm. Yeah, I, th I feel the best way to help people ground in it, I guess, a more, um, for lack of a better word, relevant frame, frame of love is that it's a, it's a frequency. It's a particular vibration. And if you, if you think of yourself as a bunch of moving particles, atoms, which you are, those particles and atoms are vibrating. And what's impacting the way that they're vibrating or how quickly they're vibrating or the quality of that vibration is the emotion that you're experiencing. And so when you've been in fear or grief or guilt or shame your whole life, you're not vibrating at a very vital place. 
love is a frequency that is allowing you to tap into um, an understanding of unity, unity consciousness. When you're in that frequency, you will see with eyes of love. Like you're not going to see edges. You're not going to see separation anymore between um, you and someone on the other side of the world or you in the ocean. Like that was massively pivotal for me when I started to recognize the divinity that I was seeing when I watched the sunset was a reflection of myself. That was like, how can you not land more deeply in love and appreciation? It's not egoic. It's just a recognition of that truth, you know, that you, that, that divinity. And until you're at a point where you're accessing that frequency, it's very difficult because you're stuck. You're not in a vibrational match for the miracle that is this life. So you can't actually experience it. You can't receive it. Um, hopefully that's kind of a practical and way to explain what, what love is. That's, that's, that's a great explanation. How would someone go about getting to this frequency so they can put the, the, the love goggles on and see, like you said, the unity, because obviously there's, there's um, like I coach a lot of athletes, for example, and they, they're very competitive based. And so when they put like the goggles that they have on for the majority of the time is competition, competition, which is, arguably like some form of separation and so how do you how would you step by step walk someone from where they are into this vibration of love yeah it's a big it's a big question there's no um, drug you can't just take a few drops or a pill love is a drug <laughs> I, I i honestly feel like most people have had some experience of feeling um love in in its truth and it's going to be the times where you were like consumed in something like super present, like timelessness, weightlessness in a state of flow. Maybe you were falling in love with a person and everything, all of the intricacies and nuances and idiosyncrasies about them were heightened. Like there was a um, extreme vitality and it's like you were experiencing everything in 4k. Mm -hmm. Like that is the power of love. Maybe you notice someone across the room, um, but these aren't just, experience these random experiences that we can only feel if we meet someone we're really attracted to you know this is a state of being that was just a portal that was that was your experience that was a gateway mm -hmm. but there's ways to reach this um constantly you know in in all moments for me a big part of that um initial process was seeing where judgment was playing out in my life mm -hmm. judgment was a huge is a huge barricade to experiencing that love. Um, so judgment of self and also judgment of others. And I think it's very vulnerable to be honest about our judgments. It's very, it's very vulnerable to be honest about our judgments toward us, towards ourselves. So if you have judgments about aspects of who you are, your physicality, it takes a lot of strength to um, be real with that and actually be present with that, with that judgment. But just watch how, if you were to do that, we'll use a physical attribute because it's something that most people will have a reference of. So say I didn't like my nose or my arms or whatever and I was standing in the mirror and I was looking at myself um, to really be present with those parts of me and to acknowledge and honour the fact that that judgment is there will allow a gateway of transcendence because these insecurities only have control over us the more we avoid them. Mm -hmm. The more we try and run away from them, avoid them, 
the, the more of a hold they're going to have on us and the harder it is to admit. It's the same with other people, you know, like if we have a judgment about someone we're seeing, a lover, for instance, there's such a powerful opportunity for transcendence if we have a safe enough space to be vulnerable in that. But what often happens is all judgment is a projection. I just want to sort of frame that. Mm -hmm. So it's never about the other person. It's always about you. So if we had a safe space in relationship to actually lean into that and be like, I'm judging this part of you. So maybe it's like a physical attribute. We'll go to an edge. Maybe you don't like your partner's body. Yeah. Everyone's like, Oh, you can't say that. It's like, what is that in you? What is the need? Because you're choosing to be with this person. So there's clear an attraction there. So why is this judgment present? You know, and it's probably uh, an attachment that you have to an aspect of um, your identity. Like you don't want to identify um, with with something that once upon a time maybe you you were around people that saw that as less than or not enough or not hot enough or whatever. But that's your edge. Like that's your opportunity to lean into it, to actually open your heart and recognize, wow, that's a part of me that is very insecure and I'm projecting that onto another person. Mm -hmm. And there's big opportunities. So I really try and encourage people to create relationships where you can explore that without taking it personally. Because a lot of the time what will happen if you say to your partner, I have judgments around your body, they're like, I can't believe you would say that to me. And they, they take it personally. That's why we have to build self-security from the inside first. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what's, what, how does love out loud help people do this? I mean, you've got a book, which I'm sure goes into your, like you said, your philosophy Um, and the movement, what's the movement? I don't know a heap about it. Um, I was privileged enough to to be able to speak to them about beliefs and, and mindset. Um, But what's, what's the, what's the way it operates in the world? Yeah, so um, Love Out Loud has many arms. Immersions and, and events have been a big part of that and partnerships as well. So working with other organisations that um, want to bring this frequency into what it is they do and how they operate. Mm-hmm. And Love Out Loud, like there's there's many ways that it's sort of um, taught. Like there's nine, there's nine key phases that someone will go through in their journey with Love Out Loud, being belief, honesty, acceptance, death, um, death, purpose, creativity, acknowledgement, gratitude, and service. So they're kind of the nine limbs. Um, and yeah, so partnerships, um, bringing an understanding of how to lead from love, um, so coin the term love-based leadership, and there's a journey that people can go through to become um, more congruent to love-based leadership. Uh, and at the moment, we're going through a very exciting iteration, raising capital to develop an app and an algorithm, which will help determine whether or not you're in a state of fear or love and facilitate you um, to, or at least your awareness, back to a place of love consistently so that you're training your capacity. And I mean, that's another podcast, but it relates to the question you asked before, which is how do you really understand the frequency of love and why are we not accessing it all the time? And in simple terms, that's because you're not, your nervous system isn't fit enough to actually hold the frequency of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons, you know, but when you start to see love and compassion as a fitness and, and a muscle that you have to train, 
um, just like going to the gym, you, you're not going to be able to squat 200 kilos overnight. It's going to take work. It's going to take consistently consistency. It's going to take training. Um, so love and the journey that love out loud takes you through is really about strengthening those aspects of all of your bodies and looking at all the parts of your unconscious and bringing them in into alignment with love so that you are strong and fit in, in that. Yeah. I love that. Um, just a bit of a sciencey question. Uh, is the app, is it based off of like heart rate variability? That'll be um, a component of it. We're still in the d design phase. Um, cool. Yeah. So we're pretty excited. I'd love to eventually launch um, some wearable tech as well, which so mm -hmm. we can, can personalize that journey even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll um I'll pick your brains on that another time. Maybe we'll go and grab a coffee or an ice cream on the beach or something. Yeah. Um. And so, this is this is a question I wrote down earlier. I was like, are there any downsides to love? Is there any time where love is bad? Um. I mean, no. <laughs> I guess I think people's projections of what they think love is probably has downsides. So, someone breaks your heart. Um, then you all of a sudden think love's really bad, but it wasn't love that broke your heart. You know, it was the loss of love that broke your heart or the perceived loss of love that broke your heart. The love itself didn't, didn't cause you pain. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, I mean, that's a very deep question. It's a, it's a deep, <laughs> that's a deep concept. Rumi said, um, find what you love and slowly let it kill you. It was his way of, of saying like, when you find what you love, it doesn't matter what happens, you know, it's like, that's, you've found yeah, the essence of all things. The Holy Grail. Yeah. And so can that thing that you love be detrimental to others if it's true love? I think people um, really struggle to, how do I want to say this? People really struggle to see someone that is in love or has love when they don't have it for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think that that can create when someone's witnessing true love and they don't believe they can have it or they don't know how to find it can bring up a lot of stuff for people. Mm. Uh, but again, it's not the love that's hurting them. It's the jealousy. It's the perceived separation. Like if you're witnessing someone, something or, or two people in love, for instance, like I challenge you to, to be in a state of appreciation of that because it's going to bring you closer to having that yourself. And what happens if someone says, I love fighting? Like it just, I love fighting. It, there's something about it when my adrenaline goes, I just, I'm out of my head, I'm in my body and I just love it. Is that love? I would, um, I mean, if we want to get super science-y, my process would probably be to hook them up to, to um, a machine that could actually measure their frequency Mm -hmm. And when they've got huge amounts of adrenaline pumping through their body, I can almost guarantee that they wouldn't actually be in a frequency of love because you actually need to be quite parasympathetic to be yeah. in that frequency. So, again, I think it's misconception mm -hmm. um, of what people think love is versus what it actually is uh, and the state of being that you have to be in in order to access and experience it. Yeah, yeah. I was... Um... I was in love at one stage in my life with a, with a woman. And I remember I walked into a shopping center and I could see 
things I couldn't normally see like colors and I could see energy and it was the most incredible feeling. And like you said, it was like, they, they might've been the trigger for it, but it was this internally cultivated feeling. And, and I like when you said like soft around the edges, that's, I felt like a cloud and I felt like I was, I felt like I was floating through space seeing, and I just had this massive smile on my face and I was like, this is what people must talk about when they talk about, you know, being able to see through the, through the eyes of love. That's it. That's exactly it. And it's intrinsic. Like that's so important to understand. This is intrinsically experienced. It's not anything outside of you. Um, That's just the, the trigger to experience what, what's always there. And obviously you've trained your love muscle quite a lot. Um, What is your, what's your ratio now of being, you know, maybe sliding into a fear-based as opposed to a love-based mindset? Or are you like fucking 100% love, baby? There's definitely a very strong baseline that it's all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a very real moment-to-moment part of my experience. Um, and do you have a kryptonite where you're like, fuck you. I hate it when you do that. Is there any judgment ever when you, I don't know if someone. It's, it's not, it's not, this is important actually. It's not that there's no judgment. It's how I process the judgment. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's no irritation. It's how I relate to the irritation. It's not that there's no pain. It's how I relate to the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's always going to be a part of your human experience, th- those things. And that's, important you know that's giving us a sense of self yeah and change our relationship to those things i get irritated all the time but i'm not i know that i'm not that irritation if that makes sense it does i think that's probably a huge realization the fact because i know a lot of people be listening going fuck i judge all the time and it just seems so impossible but it's really refreshing to hear someone say hey i i judge too but it's actually how i relate to it and i like what you said at the end um I, I can feel that feeling, but I'm not that feeling. And you can transcend the feeling and maintain a loving vibration as opposed to a judgmental vibration. Yeah, it's, it's the choices you're making. So what choice are you making when you feel that? Because a lot of people will just get carried away in the irritation or the annoyance or the judgment. Mm-hmm. But you can make a choice. And that cho- again, free will is a muscle. You need to have an alignment to your subconscious mind and you know a a bunch of things to have that sovereignty moment to moment um but when you do you can choose okay i'm feeling that so how can i bring love to this you know how can i if you're constantly in that conversation with yourself and i'm relentless like anyone that knows me well would tell you i'm very i'm a very relentless person there's really and like very devotional to to love so it's my default. Like it's, I don't ask, there's no, com- there's no question in my mind anymore. It's just like, this is the way. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. And so what's next, what's next for you apart from, you know, you've got this app, what's, where's your, are you just, Hey, I'm in the presence of God. So I'll just see what happens. Or do you still lay out plans? I have strategies and plans, of course, but I think it's also important to always, um, exercise flexibility and listen and not get too fixated on one way. Cause I think the ultimate intention that I'm here to bring can happen in so many ways. And 
that is sometimes going to be beyond what my mind can conceptualize. So, but I do believe in directionality, of course. Personally, um, I think performance. I'm making a rap EP at the moment. That's definitely a part of my future. Mm-hmm. Um, creativity, art, and I love entrepreneurship. I'd love to be an investor and invest in, in other people's projects that are serving a more loving and compassionate world. There's many, like many things. There's really no limit to what I want this life to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And Nicole, whereabouts can people read more about you, connect with you, talk to you, be involved with any of the things you're doing? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook's just my name and Insta's Nick Gibson and I see or join our Love Out Louders community. Anyone in this community is, of course, welcome. So jump in our community on Facebook. We're launching an independent um, membership next week, but you'll have all the information if you jump in Love Out Louders. Cool. And last question. Let's wrap this up. You, you don't have children, do you? I don't. If you did, and they were like the love of your life, what would be, and you were sort of saying your passing words, what would be three things that you would just really want them to know and understand um, as you left them to go and do life? All we have is this moment. Um, it's always okay. And love is always present. Oh, you're such a sweetie. (laughs) Awesome, Nicole. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the Amplify podcast. I know that the people that are watching this live um, would have left comments and I'm going to go check them out now. And for anybody listening, watching um, the replay, please, if you have any questions, reach out to Nicole directly. Go find her on social media, ask her questions, dive deeper. If any of that's resonated, obviously, Uh, Same with myself. If you have any questions, comment on the video, comment, um, ask questions, subscribe. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing you such an incredible guest. And until next time, we will see you later.